Pioneers, here we are in the second week of January. Thank you for joining us. It is good to have everyone tuning in and with us here in the building as well. As we continue our series in Pioneers, many of you begun this journey with us in fall, and uh, we took a break over the Christmas time period for our comfort series, and we're back at it here, week two of the second part of our series, Pioneer. Well, what's a pioneer? A pioneer is someone who goes into uncharted territory and forges a new path. And, and they do so in faith in the context we're speaking of. And that's why we've been leveraging the book of Acts to study faith. I mean, who doesn't want to grow in their faith? I pray that's the reason you joined us today. You want to grow in your faith. And I pray that this series does that. You know, it, it, it seems there's, there's a quote that's kind of stuck with me. Um, it says, where fear is present, faith is absent. I want to welcome faith into this place. I want to welcome faith into this sermon. And I want to grow from the faith we're going to look at each week. And in order to do that, we started each week bringing up a pioneer that we're going to celebrate and concentrate on. Now, keep in mind, all our pioneers aren't perfect people. That's not what we're focused on. We're talking about taking some of the good stuff from what they've done and growing from it. We've had a lot of pioneers through this series, and I have a more modern pioneer today. Now, what's a pioneer spirit? A pioneer spirit is someone who's willing to do whatever, whenever, and however. They're willing to sacrifice Whatever God asks them to sacrifice, they're willing to go whenever God calls them, and they're willing to do or willing to follow however God leads. Here's a picture of our pioneer this morning. Let me read from Christianity Magazine. Some of you are like, oh, finally, somebody not from the 1700s, okay? Here's his account. Let's see if you can guess who it is, and then I'll give it to you. January 2nd, 1956 was the day that this 29-year-old had waited for most of his life. He jumped out of bed, dressed as quickly as could, and, readied, and got ready for the short flight over the thick Ecuador jungle. Almost three years of jungle ministry and many hours of planning and praying had led him to this day. And within hours, he and four other missionaries would be setting up camp in the territory of the incredibly dangerous and completely uncivilized tribe known as the Alcos. Known now as the Wayodani, the Alcos had killed all outsiders ever caught in their area. Even though it was dangerous, our pioneer had no doubt that God wanted him to tell the Alcos about Jesus. He knew that was the only way their tribe would change from the violent, um, horrific killings that were going on to change. Do you know who this is? As a little boy growing up in Portland, Oregon, Jim Elliott listened carefully as visiting missionaries told about life on faraway mission fields. He asked them questions and dreamed about being a missionary himself someday. It made him so sad that so many people in other countries die without knowing about God. So on February 2nd, 1952, Jim Elliott waved goodbye to his parents and boarded a ship for an 18-day trip from San Pedro, California to Quito, Ecuador, South America. He and his missionary partner, Pete Fleming, first spent a year in Quito learning to speak Spanish, and then they moved to Shandia and a small 
Kikawa Indian village to take the place of a retiring missionary. It was there where they studied and learned the language of even the Alcas. And in their time in that village, they saw many of the villagers come to know Christ. It had been three years that they were there, and Jim was feeling the call to go to the Alcas to tell them about Jesus. But how they would do it? I mean, if they walked into this territory, they would be killed ruthlessly. In fact, famous for spearing people was this tribe. There was an oil factory not too far from this, this area they were, and many of those oil, the workers there had been killed by this tribe and were dispersing from it. This is incredibly dangerous, and so they came up with a little bit of a plan that they would work their way in by flyovers. They, they found a, a missionary pilot named Nate Saint, and he would fly this yellow crop plane, and they would fly over the villagers and lie, hang a long rope in fact, they studied so much with this plane that they would fly in a circle so this rope would stay in a certain spot as they would circle around and they would drop off packages and gifts to the Alcas. And they'd come and they'd come scrambling for them and get them. They'd look up at the plane. They even got a chance where they started using a megaphone and they were shouting down calming, peaceful, kind, we're your friend type things in the language of the Alcas. Well, one day came when they had dropped their basket, that they noticed that Alcus put something in the basket. And when they pulled it up, flew around in the circles, pulled it up, they realized that they had given them a gift. And this is when Jim Elliott and his friends decided, this is our opportunity. How can we fly in and share the love of Jesus with them? They so desperately wanted to see Jesus change this tribe and be introduced to the God of the Bible. Well, they devised a plan to fly in and land on a beach that the pilot had seen that Nate noticed when flying around. And one by one, they flew the missionaries in. They built a little tree fort and they planned for the villagers to visit. A couple days had gone by, maybe a spot or two sighting, and it got to a point where Nate flew the plane over the main village area and told them that we're here, come visit us, we want to talk to you. Well, it was day six. Jim and Pete saw two women come out of the woods and come near the water. And seizing an opportunity, they ran to them, excited that this would be their first contact with the Alcus on their territory. But approaching them, they could tell that this was not a kind exchange. For the woman had, women had anger in their eyes. And, and, and as the story reads, they begin to hear screams from the woods. Out of the woods came the Alcos, spears in hand. And the five missionaries on that beach side were met by them. And on January 8th, 1956, we're pretty close to the anniversary, they speared all five men to death. I can't imagine being speared can't imagine how long that would take. I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine the screaming of my friends. I can't imagine that scene. How horrific. How terrifying. Five men called to go share the love of Jesus Christ, speared to death on a beach. 
January 8th, 1956. What, what speaks even more is that um, it's believed that Elliot had a gun with him. But the missionaries had made a pact that they would never, never kill an Alka to save their own life because they knew they were going to heaven and they knew the Alkas were not. And so none were drawn. They, they, they laid down their life for this tribe. They went to a people to love them, but they did not love them in return. And, and what hurts even more is as news started to get back that these missionaries had been murdered, you hear the story of their wives. In fact, Life Magazine is a picture of their five wives and children. Many of these men were in their young Older 20s, early 30s. They lost a lot. Late in the afternoon of Sunday, January 8th, Elizabeth Elliott, Jim's wife, waited by the two-way radio to hear Nate Saint and his wife discuss how things had gone that day. It was a practice. That's what they would do. But there was no call. And as evening turned to night, the wives grew worried. They, they knew the news was not good. The next morning, another missionary pilot flew over the beach to look for them. He saw only the badly damaged plane on the beach. Oh, that yellow plane, that famous yellow plane. News quickly spread around the world about five missing missionaries. A United States search team went to the beach, found the missionaries' bodies, and they buried them. You know, it was Elizabeth Elliot who shared some of um, Jim's journal. Jim had a journal. Um, I began journaling years back, and one of the number one reasons I began to journal is because I realized, like, all the godliest men that I look up to in my own faith journal, so I better do it. <laughs> that was really my starting point. October 28th, so I guess, what, two months before? He wrote, um, one of the great blessings of heaven is the appreciation of heaven while on earth. He wrote, that's an Ephesians truth. I like that. And then start here. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. How many people would look at this and go, how foolish. You have children. You have a wife. And you're going into this incredibly dangerous tribe. You could die. And this quote lives beyond his grave. Oh, no, no. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. I can't keep this body, this life to gain what he cannot lose. Maybe a soul. Maybe someone in that tribe would come to Christ. You know, I want to leverage this pioneer, this martyr, this one who died trying to share the gospel. Because I think it's a good reminder for us as a church in the climate and culture we're living in where I feel the church is being pressed a little bit. And, and I think we need stories of a Jim Elliot who's willing to go to people who don't love him and show him love. And I got thinking uh, this right here. Am I able to love people who don't love me? I mean, that's next level faith, right? I mean, I mean, you can love your friends, you can love your people in your church and stuff, but how about the people who don't love you? Let's talk about your enemies. Let's talk about people who disagree with you. 
Let's talk about people who actually kind of hate you. You hear every once in a while, you spot it on a post, you see somebody making fun of your faith or mocking the God of the Bible or calling you a religious fool, and it gets you wired up. You see attacks on what you believe and you're frustrated. You see people that you know kind of hate you for what you stand for and things like this. How do I love those kind of people? Am I able to love people who do not love me? Teenager, ask yourself that in high school. I bet you can think of an enemy in your school of yours. I mean, they would consider you their enemy and you probably would consider, I mean, it's like I go to school and they're there to make my day horrible. How do you love that kind of person? Maybe it's something you watch on TV and somebody's saying something and you're just ready to grab your shoe and throw it at the television. Try to miss. Am I able to love people who don't love me? And unfortunately, I think for so many of us, we're kind of getting sucked into the anger of this time period. We're getting sucked into the hatred of this time period we're living in. There's social unrest, there's different opinions, and, and, and I think many of the church, we're, we're, we're getting sucked into it. And we gotta be careful that we don't become like the world, but even worse, that we don't begin to hate the very ones we're called to love. We need to be sold out, like Jim Elliott. And so today's sermon, we're gonna call sold out the faith of a martyr. What does that kind of faith look like? The kind of faith that keeps coming, even if someone doesn't love them. The kind of faith that is willing to take a spear. Now, many of us may never take a physical spear, but you may take some emotional spears. Who are you willing to take spears for, from, in your life? And that is going to really be an encouragement to us to sell out the way Jim Elliott did. And I understand I'm not going to be talking to a room full of Jim Elliots. He was a special breed. But there might be one or two who say, I'm all in. Whatever, whenever, however. I'm all in, God. You got me. And I might just be speaking to them. But I think this will inspire all of us to be sold out for God. Because that's our first murder of this morning. Unfortunately, today's a double murder because we're entering into Acts 7 and many of you know what happens to Stephen today in our text. Let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Let's ask the Lord to inspire us to live a life that's sold out, that's even willing to love people who don't love us. Heavenly Father, use, use your word today to touch our hearts, to soften our hearts. Lord, that many things going on around us really will tempt us to develop a cold heart, even a, even a hardened heart. Lord, we need you to soften it. We, we think of people who have said things to us, who have hurt us. We think of people that make fun of things we believe or what we stand for, and, and there's some righteous anger that stirs in there, but we can't let that anger lead to sin, Scripture tells us. And so give us a great love for people, a love that is willing to even sacrifice even our lives. In this we pray, amen. Now, what I want to do today is continue our story with Stephen.
And so if you're with us last week, we saw a faith that was different. I mean, this guy was different. Remember, Scripture said he was full of it, right? He was full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of wisdom, full of faith. And, and, and he was impossible to go against because he would just out, outthink, out-respond to anybody who attacked him. And when you can't find a hole in the message, what do you have to do if you're against him? You have to find a hole in the messenger. And so he got accusers last week if you were with us. They accused him of three things. You're blaspheming Moses. Now Moses gave them the law. These are the Judaizers, the religious leaders. You're blaspheming him. Sacrilegious, your talk of, of, of how this Jesus came to fulfill the law and now we can have Jesus living with us. Blaspheme. You're blaspheming the law that he gave by saying that Jesus fulfilled the law and, and this grace talk and how Jesus came and he asked us to love God and love others. You're blaspheming the law. And then even on top of that, you're blaspheming the temple. You're saying Jesus comes to be this. You go to the temple to meet with God. God is at the temple. And any way of getting to know God outside the temple, this is blaspheme. He stands accused. And he's in the chamber of hewn stone. He's surrounded by his accusers. And he speaks his final words on earth. Folks, what you're about to hear today is a message that was delivered minutes before his death. And this message, it, it's long. It's like 50 verses in your text. But it has some themes. It also points out some things about Stephen. Oh, he was different. And when he was accused, the high priest said to him, are these things so? Are you blaspheming Moses and the law and the temple? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. I want you to keep in mind, he didn't say, you idiots, you fools. He said, brothers, fathers, hear me, hear me. And he displays an incredible defense. It's a, an apologetic, if you will, of his own faith. Now, young people, when you hear the word apologetic, it doesn't mean I apologize for believing this, okay? An apologetic really comes from the root idea of I'm defending what I believe. See, many people have beliefs, but they can't really defend them. And, and then when their beliefs get pushed up against, they choose the path of, well, I'll just get angry and meaner than the other person, and then I want to debate. No, you didn't. You weren't able to defend what you believed, so you went the route of attacking the messenger because you didn't know how to defend the message. In fact, it's a great challenge for all of us to be able to have a defense for what we believe. He demonstrates his knowledge. He has an incredible understanding of the Old Testament. This is a deacon. This isn't one of the apostles. They called him out as one of the seven, and he has this incredible knowledge of the Old Testament. He keeps quoting it throughout his message. We hear his understanding. He grasps how Israel responds to things, and he notes things about how they respond and wants to bring them out. We also see his courage. How many of us would want to speak to an audience that did not want to hear what you're saying? I mean, it's one thing just to speak at all. I mean, I, I, somebody just, this was a while back, not any time recently, said, you know, I don't know, he's not, he's not that great a speaker. I said, well, he did have the guts to get up there. I can count on my hand that many people. 
So let's not give him too hard a time, one. Two, he did it for the Lord. And anything done for the Lord is not going to return in vain. And, and sometimes people realize that it's difficult to get on a stage, let alone get on a stage in front of critics, let alone Twitter trolls, let alone people's feedback, let alone Hebrew scholars checking if you're using it correctly. And, and then you see all the pressure that mounts up and say, no, I'm good, I'm good, you go ahead and speak. Let's go past that. Let's go back all the stresses of life. Let's bring in, you could die for this message. This is incredible courage to even speak. And then his approach is so awesome because he gets elementary with them, but that elementary principle is so profound. And so here's what I want to do. It's 50 verses. I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to summarize it because I think there's power in summary, okay? That if you hear the whole thing, it, it, will, it will bring some context to it. And it might encourage you to try to read it this afternoon, what he speaks. Because he's going to lay out an entire kind of history of the Old Testament and how God works. But he puts it under this umbrella. Now, when I was studying this and looking at this, I'm like, how am I going to make Stephen's message interesting? It's like a history class. He just blows through the Old Testament. Many of you know the illustrations he uses. So I read it once. I'm like, oh, I have no idea. Read it twice, no idea. I read it about six to seven times until something started to stand out to me. I, I saw something that kept coming up. And, and, and that's the approach that impressed me so much and I want to share with you this morning. Stephen points to patterns. Do you remember patterns as a little kid? Any little kids out there, you remember your patterns the first time you started attacking these? I think this is a kindergarten pattern, so if you can do this. You're smarter than a kindergartner, okay? Um, but like, okay, like for example, if you can see it, make it out on the screen. Apple, orange, apple, orange, apple, orange, apple. What do you think's next? Okay, and, 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 and if you go orange, you, you spotted the pattern. Brilliant, okay? Okay, okay, square, triangle, square, triangle, square, triangle, square, triangle, square, square. No, oh no, that's not the pattern. And, and, and spot the pattern. Now we're laughing, we're having a good time because that's so elementary. But do you understand how many people go through lives, go through their entire life and they can't spot patterns in their life? Man. I'm like on my fourth wife and she's just as dumb as the other ones. <laughs> Bro, do you understand the common denominator in all four marriages? Like, everywhere I work, the boss is such an idiot. It's like seven bosses. They're all so dumb. Make me work 40 hours a week. Hey, man, that's crazy. Only you've had seven bad bosses? I know, right? You ever notice so everywhere you are? There you are, man. Ah, you're the common denominator. There's a pattern in your life. Now, as you get older, you spot patterns a little bit more wisely. You know, there's a pattern in our life. When, when conflict comes into our marriage, you kind of just go, it'll, it'll go away, just go to bed. And I kind of like need to talk. Yeah, and I need you to shut up. Well, I need to talk. And there's this pattern of conflict in our marriage. We've got to catch this. This is kind of us. There's a pattern. When you feel discouraged, you go to something. Maybe you go to alcohol and you find yourself back in a bad spot. Maybe you go to food, and then you hate the way you feel. You have patterns. 
And the more you know yourself, the more you study yourself, the better. Athletes, your body has patterns. That's why you hear guys in their 20s, late 20s, early 30s going, I've reached my prime. I know how this thing works. I know how it will feel after it exerts itself. I know where that pain is coming. I've spotted these patterns. But, but, but then there's one pattern none of us want to hear sometimes. This can get you in trouble. You're just like your mother. Ooh. Watch out for that pattern. Have you ever spotted stuff, especially if you've gotten older in life, you spotted patterns where you're behaving like things that you didn't really want to emulate? Stephen wants to use patterns and point out to these Jewish leaders that they have a history of doing the same thing over and over. And what is that? What is the definition of idiocracy? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Guys, look into your past, spot the pattern, Jewish leaders, and stop this cycle. Stop this cycle. You continue to do the same thing. You've got to see this. And he wants to point out to them that God faithfully keeps sending them messengers. He's giving them grace. They reject the messengers and fall back into sin and bondage. And he wants to show them through this message, see the past, spot the pattern, stop the cycle. Is there anywhere in your life where you need that this morning? Before we go any further, look into your past. What are your patterns? You know, I had a guy say to me, Chris, it's been like five years. I can look back and go, man, every May, every May, I have that tremendous struggle with anxiety. It's almost weird. If I go back and look, it's May. Like, dude, you need to stay out of May. I know. What's that about? Because he's watching patterns, and, and he, he attacks January, February, April, March. Lord, I need to be in your word next month. For whatever reason, there's a pattern in my life. And he was able to figure out some of the things that were hitting him in May about summer and the coming fall that enabled him to move towards victory instead of just repeating the cycle. This is what Stephen does. And in his brilliant defense, he goes right at the guys. He says, let's start with Abraham. Abraham, see the past, spot the parents, stop the cycle. God gave Abraham a promise. I'm going to read a couple verses from each. I'll start in chapter 7, verse, um, let's go to. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land which I'll show you. Note a couple things here. Stephen says, the God of glory. He blasphemes God. No, he is the God of glory. I worship God. Okay, well, we do want to hear that. He gave you who you are as a people by giving a promise to our patriarch, a father of our land, the father of our people, Abraham. God gave him a promise. God used Abraham. But you walk back into sin. He goes on to declare it. You didn't follow God. You ended up having to wander, sojourners in a land belonging to others. But God in his faithfulness reached out in grace. He punished those who oppressed you and led you out of it. So Abraham became the father of Isaac, he says in verse 8, and, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. God, look in your past, God, see, see it, spot the pattern, stop the cycle. So now we have Isaac, okay? 
he goes on, and we have the Jacob and the 12 patriarchs. You know what the 12 patriarchs do? Here we go. We're going to do it again. The patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. You, you, you rejected it. You went into bondage. God sent Joseph for you, and, and God gave you a savior. You know, Joseph is what's called in hermeneutics a type, okay? He's a type. When you hear this word type, it means when you look at his life, you see another's life, okay? Joseph is a type of Christ, Okay, he came, he was chosen by God, he was, he was rejected, thrown into the pit, he came out of the pit, was exalted above every other name and offered forgiveness to those who came to him. And that's what Joseph did. Famine hit the land. The 12 patriarchs who rejected Joseph needed Joseph to save them and he had stored the grain and gave it to him. He was their savior in Egypt. See your past, God uses somebody. You reject them, God in his grace sends someone else and the cycle continues. He goes, okay, you want to talk about Moses? Let's talk about Moses. But as the time, verse 17, drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants or bring them out so that they would not, not be kept alive. The Pharaoh wanted to kill all newborn babies. And at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Let me tell you something. Every time you hear music, Moses mentioned in scripture, he's beautiful. In fact, those Jewish leaders would have always referred to Moses as being beautiful. In fact, it was in Moses who recorded of himself. He wrote of himself that he was beautiful. Tanya, Moses was a beautiful guy. I don't know what he looked like, but you must have looked at him and be like, man, he's beautiful. And Stephen's like, I'm with you guys. Moses was great. God sent you a deliverer, but he came to you. He saw a couple of you fighting with one another. He tried to stop the fight, and in doing so, one person died. You rejected him. He ran from you, but God, he came after him. God just kept coming, and he showed up in a burning bush, and he said, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. Despite their hard hearts, I'm going to have you let them go from bondage and lead them into their freedom. See the past, spot the pattern, stop the cycle. God sends you someone, he gives you a messenger, he bestows grace on you, you reject him, and the cycle keeps going. What's Stephen doing? Well, remember they accused him of blaspheming the temple? He finishes his sermon, verses 44 through 50, going, would you guys get over your building? Jesus has left the building. He wants to dwell in our lives and in our hearts. He's sending his spirit. The gospel is going out. So, so he says in this section right here, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place of my rest did not my hand make all these things? Guys, get over your buildings. You can only meet God in the temple. God wants to meet you. 
And in case you're like, why, why is God sending these messengers to be so hard on the Sanhedrin? I mean, weren't they called to keep Israel out of sin? I mean, isn't that why they were put in position, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, to keep Israel from walking away from God? But what they did is they became empowered by that, and they lorded their power over the people, and they made the people obey laws that were outside of Scripture, and the gospel is a very threat to not only their livelihoods, but their power and prestige, and they're attacking all the messengers who come and share the love of Jesus Christ, and in doing so... They're not listening, and they're just repeating past behavior. Brothers and fathers, he said, hear me, guys. Look into your past. See how God just keeps showing grace to you despite your stubborn hearts? Would you just stop the cycle of going after the very ones who are coming to save you? Stop killing the one who is coming to save you. See what you're doing. Just like Jesus, being harder on those who should know better, Stephen turns to them, and now he goes from being on trial to puts them on trial. And he says this, I'm gonna point out five things you stiff-necked people. I'm going to act at what a stiff-necked person looks like. If you're on podcast, I'm sorry, but I'm sticking my head way up. Stiff-necked. <laughs> you stiff-necked, proud people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. I'm not going to go in great detail about this because it's painful to talk about. But circumcision was a sign of the covenant of the promise given to Abraham. You understand what signs are like. We put rings on ladies' fingers to demonstrate that there's a marriage, right? It's a sign of a covenant, of a promise. Well, in Israel, the sign of the covenant was to cut the foreskin off male children. That was a sign that they were part of the covenant. It set them apart as God's people, visibly and physically. You know what Stephen's saying? You're not set apart in your heart, and you're not set apart in your ears. You're, you're hardened. You're hardened. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You know, you know what you're, you're, you're hearing this and, and you're fighting what the Holy Spirit wants to say and do. And on top of that, he drops the bomb. As your fathers did, so do you. You're just like your fathers. You don't see what you're doing. You keep repeating the same mistakes and the cycle of your life is over and over and over. Come on, guys, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name a prophet they didn't attack. And then he says, you killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Five things he points out in these men. You're haughty, you're stiff-necked, you're hardened, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're defiant, you always resist the Holy Spirit, you're monotonous, you do just as your fathers did over and over, and you're combative, you rejected the very ones God is sending you. As your fathers did, so do you, and you don't spot the cycle? Because they're hardened. 
I had a young dad come to me one time. He said, Chris, I have one goal in life as a dad. Okay, where, I know where this was going. He goes, you know, I hear you sometimes talk about fatherhood. You got lots of goals. That's awesome, man. And I'm excited. I got one goal as a dad. I said, go ahead. Come on, teach me, man. He goes, I am not going to treat my kids the way my dad treated me. That ends with me. My father was ignored by his father who was ignored by his father. And that ends with my family. My children will not be ignored with me. That pattern, that cycle in our family tree ends with me. Tears in his eyes. I said, man, that's awesome. He goes, I might stink as a dad, but that's not the area my kids are gonna look back and say I failed. They're gonna see me, they're gonna know I care, and they're gonna know I love them even if I fail. And I said, you're gonna break that family pattern. He said, I'm gonna just cut it off right here. And I know him, he's been, that, that was years ago. He's doing a great job at that. I thought that was awesome. But it took him to get a soft heart to see a pattern in his life, in his family's tree, and say, it ends with me. I'm not gonna be haughty, I'm not gonna be hard-hearted, I'm not gonna be defiant, I'm not gonna just keep doing the same thing that I grew up watching and doing. I'm not gonna be combative, I'm gonna listen to what God has for me, and I'm going to end the cycle. And this is what Stephen's calling on them. What do you need to stop doing so this doesn't keep happening? Now, if the crowd is haughty, hard, and defiant, and monotonous, Stephen, I don't think they're gonna like what you just said, so let's check this out. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Everybody try to ground your teeth. It's a weird thing. I mean, I don't even do that, do you? Like, how mad do you gotta be to be like, they're angry. I mean, they, they hate this message. They ground their teeth at him. So this is going south, okay? If I was speaking and I'm watching all you guys and you're going, are we almost done? I'm gonna kill him, okay? I'd be like, okay, this is going south, all right? They're grounding their teeth at him, but full, but he full of the Holy Spirit, I love this, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He's speaking, and he's like, whoa, what? what? And, he, and he records what he sees. Now, I'm sure there were apostles in this crowd too, or at least outside, but we know the apostles at least recorded this, okay? He said, as he looked up into heaven, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, Son of Man was the title the Pharisees and Sadducees hated because that was Jesus' favorite title while he walked around on earth of himself. But Stephen sees Jesus staring. He's standing. He's looking at him. He sees him in heaven and, and, and things just go start going south around him. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. Enough! And they rushed at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. I was thinking death by spearing would be terrible but I thought about man stoning. I mean, I think I'd probably be tempted to probably try to block as many stones as I could. But that one's gonna catch me at some point. I'm gonna go down. And the stones just keep coming. It's an ugly scene. When you think about it, it's a real ugly scene. Is there crawling? Is there trying to get away? And the stones just keep coming until they get overwhelming. 
I mean, how much hate is in your heart to have a stone and to throw it into someone's head? I mean, how much hate is in your heart at that point for a crowd to just completely take over someone and attack them? And after this was all over, many of the witnesses that were there, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who most believe orchestrated this event. For this Saul was the hardest heart maybe scripture has ever seen. And as they were stoning Stephen, we get some insight. He called out, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried with a loud voice similar to what Jesus said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said these things, he fell asleep. Do you see it? Sanhedrin, God sent you three sermons. Peter came. And now Stephen's here. Three sermons, there seems to be something about three and rejection in scripture. But now three sermons they've heard and they do the same thing. Look at their past, spot the pattern. Stephen is there trying to point them to Jesus and they kill him and the cycle continues. Or did it? Or did what Stephen did change everything? In fact, it did Next week, you'll see, as we enter into the next chapter, that the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles. A new cycle is going to begin, and God is going to use a man named Philip to share to the Gentiles. Stephen, in his sacrifice, will start a new path. But I think it's important for us to apply this in our final time together. Because I think we're in a time period where if we're honest, some of us might be tempted to get a little bit of a stone heart towards people. Especially with all the tension and division and different opinions out there. I bet you've been tempted to judge somebody. I've been tempted, you've been tempted to call somebody an idiot or stupid, maybe even within the body of Christ. And, and so I think it's important for us to think through what kind of life speaks into someone who doesn't love them in return. I put this up. Help! I'm getting a stone heart. Am I able to love people who do not love me? Am I able to do that? Am I able to love haughty, hardened, defiant, monotonous, combative people? Am I able to do that? Am I willing to take spears from somebody like that? I was watching TV with somebody recently, and um, something came on, and uh, they said, oh, that, and they just kind of, I'm not going to give you what they said. And I'm like, wow, wow, where did that come from? And this is what they said, COVID made me mean. I was a nice person before, COVID made me mean. I said, oh, COVID made you mean. And what they mean is just all the stuff going on. COVID's also made everyone sad. But the tension of the past 10, 12 months, this person was kind of just saying, it's kind of made me mean. 
political unrest, the racial tension, the angry going back and forth, the judgment and shame people are putting on one another. It's eating some people up. Am I able to love people who don't love me? I noticed something about Stephen I put in my notes I want to share with us before we leave. There, there seems to be something Stephen did right at the end, and I, I just put it just right in the side of my Bible. I saw him rebuke the error, renew his mindset, release his hurt, and rest in his father. He rebuked him. Fathers, listen to me. He renewed. Full of the spirit, he gazed into heaven. He released. Don't hold this against them. And he rested and he fell asleep. And I took that pattern and I brought it into my own spiritual life. Where can I grow from that in my own life if I'm struggling with anger towards a people group, an opinion set, or just people that I don't think love me? First, I want to rebuke any error, any anger or resentment or bitterness I'm holding in my life. Child of God, when God says don't hold anger and resentment, he's saying don't hurt yourself. That will eat you up. That will destroy your testimony and destroy your family and the people around you. Rebuke error. There are people within the body of Christ who are attacking people who aren't even saved. How can they think that? What would you expect them? They're sheep without a shepherd. Rebuke any error that we might be thinking about other people. Second, this has tempted believers even to judge one another. Oh, they're so stupid. They're this or they're that. But, but, but scripture's very clear. There's some error there to that. Look at this verse. It says this. Go one slide. Do not judge or you'll be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Give people grace. If you want grace, give people grace. Rebuke judgment, manipulation, and shame. So many times we're trying to get people into our own echo chamber. Agree with me, agree with me, agree with me, and disagree with them, and disagree with them. And we're doing it even within the body of Christ. And the devil's laughing at us like crazy. Because he wants us to divide. He wants us to be full of anger and judgment. Hey, we got to renew our mindsets. Okay? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You think you got an enemy? Yeah, they're my enemy. You think they're coming to get you? They're going to come and get me. Well, then be praying for them. Oh. They're going to come. They're going to stone me one day. Pray for them. Love your enemies. This, this is a different level kind of faith. That changes your perspective. That, that'll change your obedience. That'll change your faith. And isn't that what Jesus did? It, it was like Stephen was about to get stoned by all these people who hated him, and he appears to him and gives him a vision. He just says, hey, look at me. Oh, no, fix your eyes up here. Fix me. Look at me. Look at me. And Stephen's like, whoa. And, and, and the things of this earth, these stones grow strangely dim from people who take shots at you. And trust me, if you're standing up for Jesus Christ, young people, especially in the generations to come, you're going to have shots taken for you. How many spears are you willing to take for Jesus Christ? I know there aren't a lot of Jim Elliot's, but there might be a couple who say, I'm going to fix my eyes on Christ and let the things of the earth go strangely dim as I renew my mindset and I love people who I know don't love me at all. That's different level faith. 
And in order to do that, you have to release resentment you might be carrying in your life and exchange it for empathy and forgiveness and prayer. Hey, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. When people sow certain things, they will pay for it one day. If people don't know Jesus Christ their Savior, you should feel pity, not anger. They're going to spend eternity in hell. And finally, rest. Rest in God's plan. We know that all things work together for the good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. We can rest in God's sovereignty and God's grace and God's love. Nobody's appointed to position that God didn't allow. If you got a problem with things, you got a problem with him. He's not nervous about 2021. He's not scared. He's not going, Gabriel, I don't know what we're gonna do. He knew this was coming. He's worked with believers through all different situations in life. And he'll do it again. He's never been that nervous about human governments. He's never been that nervous about Nero or about anybody else because he has his church. And he says the gates of hell can't stand against it. Rest in his sovereignty that he's in control and seek to live a quiet and peaceful life, scripture tells us. How can I kill this root of bitterness that would keep me from loving people who don't love me in return? Well, by rebuking any error in me, by renewing my mind and focusing it on heaven and not on earth, by releasing any resentment I might have and resting in God's plan. See, I just don't know if I can love somebody who's hardened and haughty and stubborn. Well, I see parents do it because there's a lot of young people who are going through seasons of rebellion in their life and they don't see their past. They don't spot the patterns and they don't see how many cycles they're going through. But you keep taking spears. Shut up, mom. You keep taking spears, don't you? Because you love that person so much. Dad, you're an idiot. You keep taking those spears because you love them so much. You got an adult brother who disagrees with everything you say. You take spears from him. Maybe a father's been a difficult, but you just keep coming. You keep coming because you've learned a faith that can keep moving forward even when the voice on the other side is not loving you back. It's a sacrificial love. It's like a martyr's love that just wants to desperately see that person change a cycle of behavior. <laughs> From ages 16, 17, and 18, the guy speaking right here was a complete jerk, was really mean to people, was incredibly self-focused, was rude to his parents, made fun of things out here at church, yeah, I was raised here, made fun of it, made fun of Christians, mocked stuff, struggled with rebellion. I spoke one way here at church, my mouth was completely different at school. I said the Sunday school answer, didn't live it out at all. I know what it's like to be such a jerk in a home that I can destroy vacations, I can destroy family meals, where things get slammed because of my stupid, sarcastic comments. And I almost took joy in it. <laughs> but internally, I hated myself. Because I knew the trial that I was on my family. 
my wife. In her high school years, oh, she went to church. She did all those things. But she'll tell you she went through a season of stiff-necked hardness. She'd lie to her parents and say she was going one place and go to another. She said, I stole things from malls, got in trouble at school and suspended, disrespectful for teachers, and didn't one second feel guilty about it. My wife and I are both now in ministry, and we got a lot of work to do still, but God softened our hearts. Mom and dad, God can soften that young person's heart. Hey, you got a friend? God can soften their heart. You don't understand, Chris, the way I, I, I put out verses and you should see how they respond to me online. God can soften the Chris, I don't think you know this one. God can soften their heart. I wanna give a verse to any hard heart out there that maybe you could look at this week. Ezekiel 36, 26. It's speaking of a certain context, but I believe it's real applicable for a hard heart. And God will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. Or in other words, a tender, responsive heart. Scripture continues and says this, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's no heart out there that God can't soften. But I bet, I bet there's gonna have to be someone who's willing to take some spears from that hard heart and just keep coming because you'll reach out to it and it will slap you sometimes, but you just keep coming. I had a friend of mine say, wasn't it God who said to Jonah and the word of the Lord returned a second time to Jonah? God just keeps coming. Look at your past. Oftentimes, the very people those hard hearts are rejecting are the ones God is sending to you. Where's God? I'm sending you, me. In this person, you keep throwing spears at the messenger. Stop the cycle. Soften your heart. I give you this verse because I can't soften your heart. Only God can. Investigate this verse. Look it up tonight as you lay in your bed on your cell phone. Maybe it's your prayer. God, soften my heart. And if you're a child of God here today, Lord, soften my heart. I'm so angry at people. I know I should not. I should love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. But I've got, a, I've got resentment in me. Soften this heart, God. Soften this heart. Somebody's got to keep going even when it hurts. And it's going to demand some sacrifice. It's going to demand some patience. But he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Within a few years, Elizabeth Elliot went back to the Alcos, took her daughter Valerie with her, and ministered to the Alcu people. Those five men did not die in vain. In fact, we see that the Alcos actually became a very peaceful tribe Many came to know Jesus Christ as their savior. And it's Valerie Shepherd Elliot who says, I really do not believe their lives were wasted. Valerie actually began to laugh and even play with the 10 men who killed her dad. Nate Saint, I'm told, and his church 
one of the men who killed him came to his church and shared the gospel. God can soften hearts. It's one of the number one reasons we know he's alive, active, and working today. But there's gonna have to be someone who takes a few blows. Jim Elliott laid his life down to see God do amazing things. Jesus laid his life down for you. And he's the one who can soften that heart. Scripture says if you call upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved. Rebuke any error. Renew your heart. Say, Spirit, fill me up. Turn to him and stop that cycle. Heavenly Father, use the story of Jim Elliot. Use the story of Stephen. These aren't stories, they're accounts of great faith that kept coming even when the audience didn't love them. Lord, maybe you're calling someone today to keep pursuing a hard heart, even if it means they're gonna take a few blows along the way. Maybe you're calling on a hard heart today to say it's time to stop this cycle of rebellion. Or maybe you're calling on someone today who has allowed resentment and anger to hate the very people they're called to love, to soften their heart, to show love again. God, thank you for pioneers. Thank you for Stephen's life. Thank you for using his sacrifice to launch your church to the Gentiles. We thank you for this. Amen.